if you feel like you're right, that's not something that anybody can take away from you. And there's no time limit on it. For me, the best writing that I've ever read is writing that is wholly empathetic, not necessarily sympathetic. I don't think empathy is endorsement. I like to liken writing a story to getting in your house, you know, and, and you have to find a way in. You have to find the key that opens the door. And so for me, when I write a synopsis, that sort of shows me the key. When there is violence in my books, my violence has consequences. Like, my violence leaves scars. I think if your violence in your book doesn't change the people that the violence has been uh, visited upon, then it's a waste. Because in real life, you know, you get hit in the face, that doesn't heal overnight. And I want to sort of replicate that in my books. You know, there are books where violence is a male power fantasy, you know, um, but for me, violence is brutal and it's harsh and it hurts. And it should hurt because it's something that leaves scars on you emotionally and physically. Hi, and welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And we're back, baby. But we were just trying to work out, Nat and me there, before we spoke to you. Are we back with a new season? Or is it like where those big American dramas have a break before they pay off the end? Yeah, I think this this is still a continuation of season five, as far as I'm concerned, because okay. we only did like four episodes and oh, the run up right, over Christmas, yeah. it was a bit that's busy. Right. So I feel like you're a bit shortchanged for a full series. So continue yeah, season right. five and there is a full run to come. Otherwise, Netflix will never buy it. Yeah. <laughs> are, are they talking to us yet? Mm, maybe not. Not yet, but they're listening. Okay. They're always listening, always they're watching. Always listening. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting for the next big thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we're back and it's a great one. To, well, they're all great, aren't they? But um, this was somebody that we went after midway through last year. Um, it's a, an author that I came to through another writer we've had on called Steve Kavanagh. And we both read the book. And then for reasons I can't remember, the interview didn't quite happen, did it? I can't quite remember why it didn't. I think it was because we were going to do it at the end of season four. And it was just that sort of summer period and people were on holiday. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah so... well, we had to cancel one as well, didn't we? We had to. Yeah. Yeah. We had but, to bump short. But hey, listeners, don't worry about our boring logistics. Let's just tell you about the amazing S.A. Cosby. Well, the reason why I mentioned all that is because I want you to know that, that this book meant so much to both of yeah. us. That's why we wanted to pursue it. It wasn't just like, oh, it can't happen. But we were like, no, this has to happen. And luckily, Sean's got a great team. So it's Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby. Uh, you may have read Razor Blade Tears before this one, which is All the Sinners Bleed. And... um his team said, well, hang on, let's do it for the paperback release, which is right now, I think a is. global paperback release. So that's what we've done. And we're so thrilled because the author lives up to the book. Right? <laughs> he does. Yeah, he's great. He's really good. And it's, you know, it's the sort of book that is so atmospheric and captivating from the get go. It's like a Southern noir mystery thriller. I hadn't read any of his work before this, but I am fully intending to go back now and discover his other works because it was that good. Like, and you know, if you've been listening to bestsellers for a while, you probably know that Phil leans a little bit more towards the thriller side of things. And I lean a little bit more towards the kind of drama comedy although it's quite hard to find comedy books that side of things um not that i don't love a great thriller but this is so brilliant and i was just like in it from the first page and the characters are so rich and yeah it was just such a great read a uh, side note i can't say how relieved i am to hear you say that <laughs> 
because there's nothing <laughs> worse than saying that nah, you've got to read this book and, and you're not liking it. And it's only happened a couple of times, isn't it? It has happened a couple of times. And uh, and vice versa, we should say. Yeah, and vice versa, exactly. Yeah. Do you feel um, the same pressure that I feel when you push, put a book my way? Do you think, oh, I hope you love it? No, I think I just feel withering disappointment, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> spoken like a true parent i'm not angry at you i'm just disappointed <laughs> yeah no no i do because you know we very much appreciate how long it can take to read a book and also that people's everybody's time's precious so if we're talking to an author and recommending a story to read we want it to be a good one we want it to be one that people are gonna really gravitate towards so yeah if we ever get our dream of doing like bestsellers live on tour then uh just buy us a drink and we'll tell you all the books that we hated not on this podcast <laughs> but that we've read and then decided not to do <laughs> <laughs> the ones that never made the cut but yeah. this one you should prioritize and straight away put to the top of your reading list because it's superb and the location is a character in itself we're recording this it's february in the uk it's dark it's miserable it's cold it's rainy so if you're looking for that type of story to just wrap yourself up in and get lost in and distract yourself from everything else you couldn't find somewhere better to start than all the sinners bleed by S.A. Cosby so we will stop wittering on and uh, here's Phil with the full intro we're very honored to have on bestsellers as our guest for this episode a man whose last book made my top five, but never mind me. It made Barack Obama's summer reading list last year, and Stephen King also blurbed it. What more do you need when you're bringing a book out? All the Sinners Bleed is the work of S.A. Cosby, and Sean Cosby joins us now. All the way from Sean, where are you, buddy? I am in the uh, former colony of Virginia uh, on the east coast of the United States. Right. It's brilliant to have you on bestsellers. Um, do you know, you? I don't know if you know this, but you're one of those writers that other writers kept telling us we had to read and we had to book for this show, right? And the last one to do it was a mate of mine called Steve Kavanagh. I don't know if you know Steve well, or if you've met Steve at Book Things or whatever, he's nodding. But um, Steve said, what, you haven't read an essay, Cosby? And I said, no, no. He said, razor blade tears now. right? And he ordered me to read that one. <laughs> So then when this came out, I pestered the publisher for it. And uh, we weren't disappointed. We'll dissect this in true forensic detail. But first of all, I want to ask you what it's like when fellow respected crime writers are telling people like me, broadcasters, that your work needs to be read. How does that feel? It's surreal and also incredibly gratifying. Uh, I've been very lucky to meet writers like Steve Cavanaugh, like Mick Heron, uh, like Graham uh, Powell, writers that I admire. And to hear them say, oh, yeah, we love your work. It is an incredible, as writers, we need constant validation. And so when you get, when you get it from some of the titans of your industry, it it helps to uh, sort of uh, assuage that imposter syndrome for a little while. But, it you know, it's really great to hear that. Steve and I have met uh, a few times, and we actually were at Harrogate last year and and shared uh, quite a few uh, quite a few whiskeys. So I, I love Steve, and uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that he got you guys to read the book. <laughs> and what about when Stephen King describes your book as fresh and exhilarating? I mean, it must be exhilarating just to hear King say that, right? It's exhilarating, exciting. It's intense. It's it's one of those things where I almost can't believe it, and so I try not to think about it too much because, like, it's like if that's one thing, like if it's a dream, don't wake me up. You know, I grew up reading Stephen King's books, and for him to say just you know, really nice things about it. And he, he did a review last year in the New York Times for it. And, you know, 
it's one of those, it's a thing where I, again, so much of my career, uh, especially the last couple of years have been the sort of, sort of uh, hallucinatory moments that I can't believe happened. And I'm just so grateful, you know, and, uh, it, and it's, you know, it's cool when somebody that you admire says, Hey, you're, you're not bad. Yeah, no, that's a really good thing. And uh, just to, <laughs> this is a, a very typical comment for me to make, as Phil will know, and anybody listening to this podcast, that obviously we're going to talk Uh-oh. loads about your writing, Sean. <laughs> but what I also love is that, like, we are now doing a podcast with three Leos. Yay to the Leos in the house. And also, uh, I, because I have been aware of your writing for a while um, and follow you on social media, I also know how much you appreciate cats. So this is Riley, who's sleeping behind me right now. <laughs> I, I kind of love that mix of like a good person and an incredible writer as well. This is how we warm the guests up, Sean. I blow smoke and then she shows you cats. <laughs> and like five minutes in, we've won you around, man. <laughs> it's a great one-two punch. Exactly. There you go. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, we'll get on to the heavier stuff like Manifest Destiny later, but... <laughs> but on that point, I, I do think it, it's we're kind of living in a really interesting time because whatever art you like, whether it's books or films or TV, you can find out so much about a person right through their social media lens. Do you do that as well when there's somebody that you like? Do you kind of find you gravitate more towards loving somebody if you really connect with who you think they are as a person as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely in this age of social media. I vet people by going to their uh, social media pages and see seeing what they like, you know, do they have any like QAnon conspiracies or anything like that? So once I clear that hurdle, it's like, it's really cool to get an insight into somebody's mind. You know, and so, you know, social media has a lot of problems, but one of the great things is you're really getting a real time understanding of how someone sees the world. And so for me, it's been a great tool to meet and, and, and interact with folks. I love when readers reach out to me on social media and I've the greatest thing in the world is like you get a tweet or a or a post from somebody that you really like where they either tag you or they mention your book you know there's an American comedian named Patton Oswalt and uh he said something about my book of uh, last year and it was like one of the coolest things and then we like exchanged comments and now we follow each other so it's a great uh way to get to know people and to really branch out uh in a way that I think is unique uh, you know, that's the good side of social media. And it's like 75 other terrible things, but, you know, focus on the good. So Yeah, always focus on the good. And isn't Patton Oswalt, didn't he voice Remy the rat in Ratatouille as well? Love that film. Yes. <laughs> so just to get it out of the way so that I will be happy, just tell me briefly about your cats. How many? Uh, how much do you spoil them? Have you always been a cat person? Because obviously cat people are amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> so I have two cats. One is named Flipper. The other one is named Phoebe. And both of them are strays that came in, into our lives. Uh, Phoebe we've had for about nine years. Flipper we've only had for three years. Um, but both of them are terribly spoiled. Uh, both of them are incredibly supercilious. And uh, both of them uh, think that we work for them. So, like, uh, but I love them dearly. Uh, Flipper, especially, is a very, uh, Phoebe likes us, but sort, you know, having a cat is sort of sometimes like having a sociopathic roommate that once cuddles, but also might kill you. Yeah. <laughs> so they can, they can be a bit standoffish, but Flipper is a little more affectionate than Phoebe, but I love them both. You know, I've always been an animal person. Uh, I had dogs for a long time. I had a pug named Pugsley for 15 years. 
uh, uh, that was my buddy. I grew up in a very rural area, so I've always been around animals. Uh, so I love animals. I don't trust people who don't like animals. Same. Hard agree on that. So let's set up. Um, I don't want to give too much away for all the Sinners Bleed because it's out in paperback right now. But we both read it last year. But you, you, your main character's the new sheriff in town. Well, not so new. He's kind of been doing it a year and he's called Titus. And you, you'd think he'd gone back to a place that would be full of affection for him, but it kind of isn't. And I kind of feel as well that the way you've written this, some of the some of his harshest critics are from his own community, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Titus is, you know, the first black uh, African-American sheriff in this small town. And, you know, he ran for sheriff with all these good intentions of helping his community, not just his African-American community, but the entire community. And But once he became sheriff, he feels like he's a man on an island alone. You know, uh, some of the white citizens don't trust him because he's black and some of the black citizens don't trust him because he's a sheriff. And so he sort of finds himself a man without a country. But the thing about Titus that I, I like is that he perseveres anyway. You know, my grandfather used to say, doing the right thing is rarely easy, but it's always worth it. And I think Titus sort of exemplifies that, even though he's getting, you know, really, really harsh criticism from people he went to school with, his people he grew up with. He still perseveres. He still pushes forward. You know, he's a uh, I like to think of him as a, 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 a sort of a knight errant. And uh, he he does the right thing despite the consequences. Yeah, there's a, a quote quite early on where you say when they discussed the possibility of Titus running, he'd gone to great pains to ensure that Jamal realized he was going to be a sheriff who was black not the black community's sheriff. But in, in a way, he almost doesn't have any friends here, does he? He's almost in the middle of this tinderbox that's just waiting to go up. Yeah, he's pretty lonely. You know, he's got a girlfriend. He has his father. He has a brother. And that's about it. And uh, I think he didn't realize that when he decided to run. You know, in, in preparation for this book, I, I talked to some current and former police officers here in the United States, here in Virginia. And that was some, I talked to an, an African-American uh, police officer and he said, you know, that's one of the things I didn't realize that once I put the uniform on, some people stop seeing me for who I am. They just see the uniform and there's nothing you can do about it. And so I think that's sort of Titus's uh, cross he has to bear. But, um, you know, he's a character that I think has a certain sort of moral inflexibility and that gives him strength in some in some areas. And that is a is a flaw in others. But um, I think for lack of a better word, he's too stubborn not to do the right thing. He's yeah. been in the FBI prior to this, hasn't he? And you interviewed an FBI guy, didn't you? And I know you don't want to do an jigsaw ID here, but tell us the most striking thing that your FBI source revealed to you about years in that job. The thing, and I, I was, it was, it was so funny because a, a friend of mine uh, facilitated this sort of conversation, but it was very cloak and dagger. Like we were on a three-way call, and the person was using a voice changer. It was, it was very, uh, uh, it was very uh, slow horses, so to speak. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, the one thing that really stuck out to me was that the gentleman said there were so many times where I had to let somebody go that I knew had done it. And there were many times where the idea of taking the law into my own hands came into my mind because, you know, the, the thing about like my previous books have all been about outlaws, have been about hard men. And in that world, there aren't any rules. You know, the, the only rule basically is don't get caught. Um, writing about a police officer, writing about somebody in a position of power, an elected official, 
there are rules. Now, we all know that not everybody follows those rules, but Titus is the type of character that wants to follow rules and wants to enforce them. And so it makes it, I think, for that type of character more difficult when they can't, you know, uh, bring the guilty uh, to justice. And so that was the thing that really struck out that this FBI agent who had, you know, had been in the FBI for a long time and he still had these ideas of how it's hard to see the guilty get away unpunished. And that really, uh, really struck me. Yeah, I think it's also that notion which you cover so well in the book too about choosing your battles, as my mum would say. So kind of picking which which fight to take on because there are so many um, and there are so many for Titus in this book as well. It's really hard to talk to you because I really want to talk about the ending and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. Uh, but the character... <laughs> The characters that you you develop in this story, you you kind of do do that clever thing where obviously it's kind of a whodunit as well. So you're trying to work out who has caused these, who is behind these horrific murders of black kids in this town in the South of America. And it's that sort of thing where there are so many people who could have done it. So when you were writing it, were you purposely, you don't even have to lay red herrings. It's more just sort of showing society as it is and how flawed everyone is and the prejudices that they have. Yeah. So when I was writing it, that was interesting because I have a really good friend who is a, uh, a mystery writer. He worked on a TV show called the mentalist for a number of years. I love the mentalist. I used to love watching that show. Yeah. And so he was a, he was a writer on the mentalist. And I asked him, I said, do I have enough red herrings? He said, you don't really need that many. He's all you need is a plausible suspect. And he said, what I mean is, you just got to set up a situation where anybody could have done it, you know? And once you've set that in motion, everybody becomes a suspect. So everybody's a red herring. You know, he said, he did give me a piece of advice though. He said, decide early on who the killer is and stick to it. He's like, <laughs> write it down. He's like, don't forget it. He said, because, you know, you'll get lost sometimes in the minutia of this interesting world that you're creating. But yeah, for me, it was, I think I really did want to hammer that home that, you know, we're all, we all have three faces. You know, we have a public mm -hmm. face, a private face, and a true face. And we rarely know the true face of anyone. You know, even someone, your your, your wife or your spouse, I should say, your wife or husband or your partner, you only know them so much. And so I really wanted to emphasize that no one in this town knows anybody. You know, you have people you love, you have people you care about, you have people that are your friends, you have people that are your enemies. But really, you know, in the, in the dark of night, in our deepest, you know, recesses of our souls, we don't know anyone. And I really wanted to sort of hammer it. And that's, that's the scariest thing about a serial killer. Uh, one of my favorite books is Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. It's sort of that same thing. You Anybody could do this. We don't know who people are. Another one that I love is uh, Darkness Take My Hand by Dennis Lehane. And that has a great killer. The, the villain is someone you never would suspect. And again, I think that's the most atavastically terrifying thing about a serial killer now. So what a lot of um, writers say that they... They had something to say, which is the starting point for the novel. But I feel, having read this, you had so many things to say. Could you could you pinpoint it to one? I think that was the problem with the book when I first started it. This book gave me so many. I usually write a book in about nine months. This took a year and a half because wow. there were a lot of things that I wanted to say. And I sort of had to, as you said earlier, pick my battles. I had to sort of narrow down what is I want to talk about. I originally started writing this book in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in uh, in the United States. And I pretty quickly realized I didn't have enough emotional distance from that issue 
to really give it the due deference that it needed. And so I decided to like reconfigure what I was trying to say. And the thing that struck me was I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a former minister. He said something that really hit me. He said, you know, the reason I stopped being a minister is because I realized in the in his words, the modern church isn't about helping people, isn't about doing Christly things, Christ-like things. He said, we don't help the least of us. And I felt like I wasn't helping the least of us. And that really stuck with me. And I really wanted to see a character like Titus who is dedicated, who is almost obsessed with helping the least of us. And so you take that and juxtapose it against religion. And I don't, I've been very lucky to visit England in the last couple of years. And there is this sense when you go out of London, when you're in small towns, that's very similar to the United States, how small towns can be very claustrophobic, mm-hmm. you know, and how religion and, and and local politics contribute to that claustrophobia. And that was something I wanted to show in the book, that religion and social dynamics make it almost like you're being strangled sometimes in a small town. And I think that's something unique to small towns and hamlets and villages. That's not the same in a big city. It's not the same in London or New York City. You know, uh, the thing about a small town that's great is everybody knows everybody. And the thing about a small town that's terrible is everybody knows everybody. <laughs> yeah. So I, sort of- <laughs> I want to read a short bit from the book that, that kind of talks about that. Um, it, it's a chat between um, the, the reverend and, and the sheriff. You don't believe in the devil, Sheriff? Reverend Wilkes asked. Titus placed his hat on his knee and cocked his head to the right. Reverend, if you've seen the things I have, you'd realise the devil's just the name we give to the terrible things we do to each other, Titus said. That's a rather dim view of humanity, Sheriff. From where I sit, that's the only view that makes sense, Reverend, Titus said. Reverend Wilkes nodded slowly. I can't imagine what you've seen, Sheriff, but I'll keep you in my prayers. I love that passage because it's it's almost non-judgmental but it's highlighting the issues between pragmatism and religious following yeah and i wanted to really i think people read the book sometimes come away with the idea that i'm anti-religious and i'm not i'm really not i was raised in a very uh (laughs) a very intense church in the united states it's called a pentecostal church and so i like to say our church choir had a bass guitar and a drum kit and um (laughs) and, and uh and I was raised in a very passionate sort of religious environment. But I also saw, you know, at one point our church, our minister uh, was having an affair with like four women in the church at the same time. And so I sort of have this sort of agnostic view of religion. I don't hate religion. I'm not anti-religious, but I do think we sort of use religion as a cudgel and a weapon sometimes, and we don't use it as a comfort as much as we should. And I'm, I, I, again, I, I want to reiterate, I'm not anti-religious, but I guess I'm anti-church. I don't think you need to go to church to be religious or be spiritual or whatever gives you comfort. Um, and I think Titus is sort of my mouthpiece for that sometimes. Um, but at the same time, the book, and we can't talk about the ending, but the book has an optimistic sort of spiritual ending. And I, I think, I hope people take that from it. I think, you know, for me, spirituality is whatever gives you comfort that, you know, will and, and, and it's whatever helps you see beyond this place of wrath and tears to uh, quote Invicticus. So yeah. here, church attendances are dwindling and there's big evidence around that. But what about where this story set and what about where you're speaking to us from now? You know, what's funny. So in my hometown, I live in a very small county and uh, of 8,000 people. And I did this research. I counted it. 
there are 23 churches here. And there's this sense, I think, in small town and rural areas that church and religion help bind us together. You know, it's sort of this protection against the outside world, against the interlopers. But having said that, even here, our church attendance is dwindling. My my church that I attended as a child, I would say on any given Sunday, we maybe have 25 people. Um, and I think there's a lot that goes into that. I think there's, uh, you know, the accessibility of travel, of transportation. People don't have to stay around. You know, back in the day, church was what you did for fun on, on the weekend because you couldn't go anywhere else. And so I think that's one aspect of it. But I also think, you know, there are certain social constructs that are falling away. I don't think churches are friendly to young people, to LGBTQ people, to uh, uh, neurodivergent people. And so I think that is something that some churches are addressing and some aren't. Again, I'm not anti-religious, but I think it's an indictment of your church if your leader, if your minister gets a brand new car and a brand new robe every year, and yet there are people in your community that are starving. Yeah, no, <laughs> I couldn't put it better myself. Uh, and similarly, I, I don't want to kind of to make this a whole conversation about religion necessarily, because I'm aware that it's a very divisive topic. But I pulled out a quote as well from All the Sinners Bleed that I particularly resonated with, which was that religion was just another crutch like liquor or weed. And I totally agree with that, too. And uh, <laughs> I went to a Church of England school, um, but I was always questioning religion and they didn't have answers for me, which I found very uh, dissatisfying. Um, but then I'd always get into trouble for asking questions. Uh, <laughs> and just that notion that religion gets a free pass for for so much. I've, I've never been able to, to marry up anyway. Um, but kind of moving aside from that, as you say, there's this beautiful spiritual element to the ending how did that did that was that something that just kind of came to you do you kind of plot everything meticulously or was it almost like a kind of just a beautiful magical moment that happened as you were writing so i am not a meticulous outliner i i do plot i write before i start a book i like to write a synopsis and it's sort of this really sort of stream of consciousness thing where i'm telling myself the story i i like to i like to liken writing a story to getting in your house you know and, and you have to find a way in you have to find the key the, opens the door. And so for me, when I write a synopsis, that sort of shows me the key. That moment, and for people who have read the book, they know what I'm talking about. That sort of came out of nowhere um, because the ending is very dark. It's very brutal. There's a lot of blood and, and knives and guns are used in various ways. And I, I still had this thought of Titus as this knight, you know? And one of my favorite uh, uh, movies from a few years ago was The Green Knight. And I'm a big uh, Arthurian fan. I love Alfred Lloyd Tennyson's work. I, I love the Arthurian legend. And Death Patel as well is great. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and there's something about a moment when a knight, air quotes, is at their lowest, that they find this sort of spiritual awakening, this sort of epiphany. And so that's sort of where that moment comes from. And so for me, you know, the book has got a serial killer and there's, there's a shooting and there's political unrest and social strife. But really, it's a, a book about a man's journey to accepting, you know, that he can't solve everything. And that's what Titus, that's Titus's journey. It's like he has to learn that he can't fix everything. Fix the things that you can control and let everything else fall aside. And so all the, the, the thriller aspects are sort of the window dressing. But the real story is this man learning to accept himself. And I, I wanted that moment to sort of crystallize that 
for him. And how good are you at that, Sean? Because I'm awful at doing that. I'm terrible at <laughs> I'm it. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I'm awful at it. I'm just the worst. <laughs> like, so it's fun that I can give Titus to sort of a this epiphany that I can't uh, give to myself. You know, doctor, heal thyself. So <laughs> it's true. I, I'm not very good at doing that either. Um, I really want to talk a bit more about the emotional heart of it a little bit, but seeing as both Phil and I have probably butchered your beautiful language both already can you read us a little bit do you need to set it up at all the passage you're going to read or is it from the beginning yeah i'm just going to read the uh the first part of the i'm going to read the prologue this is the first thing i ever wrote when i was writing this book and i'll say one thing about prologues most editors will tell you don't do a prologue readers hate prologues and there are readers who will tell you if i see a prologue i won't read the book and i kind of i kind of went back and forth with it like i don't know if i'm going to do it and then I read a Dennis Lehane book that has this beautiful prologue. And I was like, well, if it's good enough for Dennis Lehane, it's good enough for S.A. Cosby. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, just before you start, I'm interested in that because I'm I, I'm nonplussed. You know, like, I it won't turn me off. But it won't turn me on. I'm like, okay, it's a prologue. I get it. They want to tell us something so the story makes sense. I get it. I'm all right with it. Why do people have such antipathy to them? I think people have been taught in like MFA programs and stuff to like get right into it. Don't waste time. Get into the meat of the, you know, artist objective. The, the only, you know, I think it was a uh, Stephen Crane who said, no, someone said mom who said there are three right. rules to writing. And the first rule is nobody knows the other two. So yeah, <laughs> do what you want. <laughs> I yeah. love that. And I think also there's kind of, there's a bit more of a, a trend, I suppose, in publishing as well, isn't there? To kind of have the opening like prologue be an action scene so that that, kind of you, you refer to something and then come back to it later but again i'm the same i'm like it's you know every book's different and whatever works for the story is fine so yeah sorry sean yeah. take it away no you're fine and I'll, I'll read some of that now sharon county was founded in bloodshed and darkness literally and figuratively even the name is enveloped in shadows and morbidity legend has it the name of the county was supposed to be charlotte or charles but the town elders waited too late and those names were already taken by the time they decided to incorporate their fledgling encampment. As the story goes, they just moved their finger down the list of names until they settled on Charon. Those men, weathered as wit leather with hands like splitting malls, bestowed the name of the new town with no regard to its macabre nature. Or perhaps they just liked the name because a river flowed through the county and emptied into the Chesapeake Bay like the river sticks. Who knows? Who could know the thoughts of those long dead men? What is known is in 1805, in the dead of night, a group of white landowners chafing at the limits of their own manifest destiny set fire to the last remaining indigenous village on that teardrop-shaped peninsula that would become Charon County. Those who escaped the flames were brought down by muskets with no regard to age, gender, or infirmity. And that was just the first of many tragedies in the history of Charon. There was the cannibalism of the winter of 1853, the malaria outbreak of 1901, the United Daughters of the Confederacy picnic poisoning of 1935, the Dan family murder-suicide of 1957, and the tent revival baptismal drownings of 1968, and on and on and on. The soil of Charon County, like most towns and counties in the South, was sown with a generation of tears. There were places where violence and mayhem were celebrated as the pillars of a pioneering spirit every Founders Day in the county square. Blood and tears, violence and mayhem, love and hate. These were the rocks upon which the South was built. They were the foundation upon which Charon County stood. 
if you had an occasion to ask some of the citizens of Charon, most of them will tell you that those things were in the past, that they had been washed away by the river of time that flows ever forward. They might even say that those things should be forgotten and left to the ages. But if you ask Sheriff Titus Crown, well, he would have said that anyone who believed that was a fool or a liar or both. And if you had an occasion to speak with him after that long, dark October, he would have told you that maybe the foundation of Charon was rotten and fetid and full of corruption, not only corruption of the flesh, but of the soul. That maybe the rocks the South were built upon were shifting and splitting like the stone Moses struck with his staff. But instead of water, only blood and liquor would come pouring forth. He might touch the scars on his face or the ones on his chest and absentmindedly lock eyes with you and say in that harsh whisper that was now his speaking voice, the South doesn't change. You can try to hide the past, but it comes back in ways worse than it was before, terrible ways. He might sigh and look away and say, no, the South doesn't change. Just the names and the dates and the faces. And sometimes even they don't change. Not really. Sometimes it's the same day, the same faces, waiting for you when you close your eyes, waiting for you in the dark. Oh, it's <laughs> so good, right? So Why didn't you do your own audio book, dude? <laughs> you got someone else to do it. You should. You should have done. Do your next. One. I think. Uh, I think a man has to know his limitations. So <laughs> there's a wonderful actor. <laughs> there's a wonderful actor that does my books, and he's incredible. And uh, Adam Lazar White, and I, I love his performances. So yeah, I'll let him handle that. I'll keep writing, and I'll let him keep talking. <laughs> a man's got to know his limitations. Magnum Force, Dirty Harry. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's the yeah. quote. <laughs> it's such a good opening to a book, though. And uh, I read it on my uh, Kindle, which I've got here. And I basically highlighted so many passages just in that opening prologue as well. So um, we kind of like alluded to it briefly. But I think the, the notion of manifest destiny is not something that's particularly taught, I don't think, in UK schools. I don't know if it's taught as a specific thing in American schools, but um, I was fortunate enough to choose a really good degree at university, which was American, really awful title, American and Commonwealth Arts, but it was basically art and literature and history and photography and film from uh, like continents of Africa and Australia and America. And so it was a really great grounding in so many things. Um, but for those who don't know Manifest Destiny, as I understand it, uh, is it was white Americans' belief. So the first people who arrived in America believed that they could sweep across the land and it was their destiny to colonize all of the states. And that underpins mm. so much of, well, all of American history, right? And it's kind of bubbling mm. there the whole time. Yeah, I feel like it's still not really spoken about that it was this really shit idea from centuries ago <laughs> that people still like fall into. Yeah, I mean, it's the same, I think the same mentality of the, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire. It's this idea yeah. that you are destined to control as much as you can see, as much as you can grab, as much as you can take. And anything that is in service to that destiny is fine. You know, the ends justify the means. And it's such a horrific sort of philosophy that contributed to the genocide of indigenous people that contributed to the enslavement and the brutality of uh, kidnapped Africans. And so I think growing up in a, in a, in a place 
like Virginia, and I love Virginia. I love my home. I really do. But there are places here that are still relitigating the Civil War. There are places here that are still enamored with that sort of manifest destiny idea that white cis gender men should really be in charge of everything because they've done such a bang up job so far. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> but um you don't have to I, tell I, us about I, that in the UK. And like so, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I do write about that. I think all the sins bleed is the first time I have um explicitly written about it, but it's a tone that it, it's something that bubbles under my work. When I was a kid, so <laughs> I'm I'm dating myself, I hope, but when I was a kid, I was taught in like primary school that manifest destiny was this great thing. It was a wonderful idea, you know, and you know. I was also taught that, um, you know, the Civil War was the war of Northern aggression. So, you know, uh, there's something to be said for getting a post-secondary uh, education. But, um, uh, and so it's something I definitely uh, am working, I don't say working through, but it's something I'd use and something I want to address. And, and mostly all my work, I think the book I'm working on now is probably the first book that is not explicitly, explicitly something I'm uh, focused on. Uh, and so, um, but it's interesting that, that is an idea that people don't really want to talk about anymore in the United States. We kind of want to, with a lot of other things, shove it under the rug. I don't think there's much more room under the rug over here, but that's definitely what some people want to do. Well, it's, it's the same in the UK as well. Like, not that it's any consolation in those horrific terms, but in a similar way with, uh, with the, as you said, the British Empire. It's There are many people who don't think that the really horrific nature of so much of that gets discussed because that was in the past. <laughs> Yeah, it's still happening. But anyway, exactly. uh, but but I do kind of want to stress, though, that in your writing, I think what Phil said earlier as well is is so true that you do write about all these really, really gnarly subjects, but in a non-judgmental way, because it's so you're not polarizing readers when you're writing it. Does that kind of come naturally? Did you have to work at the tone of that? I took advice from a really good writer friend a great writer in their own right, um, friend of mine named Kelly Garrett. And we were talking, because she's an African-American woman, and we were talking about, you know, what is your responsibility as a person of color when it comes to writing? Is Do you have a responsibility? And I think sometimes writers of, of color, whatever your background, whether it's African, Indian, uh, Pakistani, whatever, sometimes people look at you like, you know, you've got to explain everything to us. You've got to be this model minority. And so I, I, I sort of, we, came up with this idea we were talking you know it's not on us to educate anybody it's on us to tell a good story and nobody wants a 300 page sermon um for me the best writing that i've ever read is writing that is wholly empathetic not necessarily sympathetic i don't think empathy is endorsement you know so when i write about ricky sowers and all the sinners bleed who in many ways is a despicable character, but I have empathy for him in so much as he's been taught to believe a certain thing. That certain thing has become his entire identity. And without it, who is he? You know, without his love of the Confederacy, without his adulation for the Confederate flag, there's nothing, there's no Ricky there. And later on in the book, he sort of comes to that realization of probably too late. And so again, now in the real world, I would not spit on a Ricky Sowers if he was on fire. But as a writer, I empathize with that character. I empathize with who he is and the mistakes that have brought him to this place. You know, conversing with Titus. Titus is imperfect. You know, Titus is the protagonist. He's the hero. But Titus has his own hangups. He's so tightly wound. He's, 
he you know he organizes his closet alphabetically by color uh, so <laughs> he's got a he's very tightly wound he needs to loosen up a little bit he has um, a girlfriend in this book who um you know he likes her but does he love her we don't know and so again that's not me passing judgment on him that's me showing you this such a situation you know me personally i probably wouldn't uh date somebody that i wasn't in love with but titus has made a decision and there's reasons for it and again i don't judge any of my characters uh i empathize with them but again my empathy is not endorsement of their uh their actions you know i'll say one more thing about that i wrote a book a few years ago called blacktop wasteland and the main character in that is a, a gentleman named bug montage he's a he's a getaway driver he's a criminal uh his day job is he's a mechanic right and Bug is a sociopath. I, and so I I posted something on social media one day about, you know, a, a quote from a movie that, you know, I said, uh, there's a quote from a movie that even bad men love their mamas. And I said, yeah, I think Bug would uh, would agree with that. And so many readers came into that, that post saying, you know, Bug's not a bad man. Why would you say that? And I'm like, ma'am, sir, he kills nine people in the book. He's not a good person. <laughs> I empathize with him, though. I empathize with his situation and what brought him to that point, but I'm not endorsing it. So in one way, it's sort of a compliment that readers identify with a character so deeply, but another way, it is this idea that we can talk about these characters uh, without passing judgment on them. I, I give you their circumstances. I give you their situation. I am empathetic to it and allow you to make your own decision. But I think as a writer, if you liked every character you wrote about, then your book would be very boring. And also, in real life, there are very few people that are just pure evil. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And so, and exactly. you've got to, you have to make these three-dimensional characters, don't you? And otherwise, if it's just the archetypal kind of A-team villain that's just the bully in the small town, just waiting for Hannibal and B.A. and Face and Murdoch to build a tank out of a papier-mâché machine so they can break out the shed and save the town, then it's kind of just one-dimensional, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It gets really boring really quick when the villain is just, you know, twirling their mustache and tying a damsel to a, a train track i think you know there's this old that you know the, every villain is a hero in his own story I, don't know if I believe that i think every villain it may not think he's a hero of his or her story but they do think what they're doing is justified they do think that their motivations are are defendable and again i, I think there's this idea especially in popular literary criticism that you know if you write about terrible people then you're a terrible person you know if you write about murder and assault and mayhem, then you've done those things. And I think that's so sad. I think, you know, we, we've sort of lost that idea of the death of the author, that the author, you know, metaphorically dies when they complete a book. You, I'm not a part of that experience. I've given you this story. I want you to enjoy it, but I want you to interpret it. And the things that are, take place in that book or that uh, that work are not things that I'm doing. I haven't robbed the bank. You know, I've got some speed tickets, but I haven't <laughs> been a heist driver. I'm not a sheriff. I, I don't have to be. You know, uh, it also goes back to that sort of school of thought from like, uh, you know, the 20s and 30s, the Hemingway school that you have to do everything that you're writing about. So if you're Hemingway, I'm going to write about boxing. I'm going to box. I'm writing about fishing. I'm going to fish. I, I think that's a short-sighted literary uh, idea. I, I don't think you need to do all of that. I can just pretend. That's the fun thing about being a writer. I just make shit up. So, Well, it's like when actors go method, right? And then someone else points out to them, it's acting. <laughs> You are pretending. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you mentioned, um, um, well, you've mentioned the South quite a lot, and obviously you, you're still living in, in Virginia. There's a line I pulled out just to ask you for, for a personal view of, of the South. 
Um, I, and I've been, by the way, I've been to parts of, I've done some driving down. Me too. I'll tell you what happened, but I'll do the line from the book first. Um, it occurred to him, Titus, no place was more confused by its past or more terrified of the future than the South. What is it terrified of? Um, this reckoning that some people feel is coming. You know, there's a great, great line from uh, the, the activist and poet Nikki Giovanni that in America, white people should be glad that we want uh, equality and not revenge. And I think there are people in the South that don't believe that, that they're afraid that there's this, this reckoning, this blood atonement is coming. Um, and I don't think it is. I think if we can move forward in the South together, that we can move past that idea. We can, uh, but we have to also be honest about the past. And there's this sort of, sort of diaphanous veneer that some people put on in the past. So about the, the Southern, the, the past of the South. I'll tell you a really quick story. So a few years ago, I was at a writing conference and I was on a panel about Southern crime fiction. And it was me, uh, Ace Atkins, Steph Post, Alice Segura, and Eric Pruitt, great writers, all Southern writers like myself. And we were talking about what we call the four pillars of Southern fiction, which are class, race, sex, and religion. And we talked about, you know, all the things that are part of the South, the Civil War, slavery, you know, Jim Crow, so on and so forth. And at the end, a lady got up and she said, well, I don't really have a question. I have a comment. And Ace Atkins, who's bigger than me, and I'm a big dude, he elbows me. He's like, here we go. And so this lady got up and she said, well, I think you guys are being really hard on the South. And, you know, it's a beautiful area. And I, for one, I mean, I know it was a difficult time, but, you know, the antebellum period was beautiful. And the fashion and the etiquette and the manners. I wish we had those manners now. And you could hear a pin drop <laughs> in that room. And so... Somebody asked uh, me that I want to respond to that. And I said to the lady, I said, you know, ma'am, I love a bustle skirt as much as the next person. But, you know, that time period wasn't great for everybody. And we all laughed and the woman left. She was upset. But that's that mentality in the South that, you know, <laughs> it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. Or it was it was bad. But, you know, let's not talk about the bad parts. Let's talk about, you know, fiddly and you know, and, and Tara and Gone with the Wind and all that. And so I think that we in the South have a, still a long way to go to sort of reckon with our past. And once we reckon with our past, maybe we won't be so afraid of the future. So when I was in the South, it was a couple of years ago, we stopped at a rest area, which we call here services, right? And I was paying for this McDonald's in cash. And I'd, we'd only been in the country two days. I'd put the wrong coins on the counter. And a very young, I would say, 16, 17-year-old woman, white woman behind the counter. And she went to me, ah, uh -uh. 1725 and i went oh i'm sorry it's my mistake i've put the wrong coin down and she went oh y'all not from here and i said no she said where y'all from and it's just easier to say london so i said london right and she said y'all don't have coins yeah. in london <laughs> and i said no no we've got coins we just don't have these coins and then she goes oh so when y'all come here how'd y'all get cash and I said, same as you from the ATM. And she went, no way. And she walked off to get our food. That blew my mind. That encounter blew my mind. <laughs> I was in uh, uh, Mississippi early this year. And it's funny because in small towns, you immediately know when someone's new. And so I went, I was in Mississippi and I was down there for a book conference. And I went to a restaurant and I got a table. And a lady comes over here and she was like, are you one of the Johnsons? I think, no, ma'am. And she looked at me again. She's like, are you a Wilson? I think, no, ma'am. She's like, you're not from around here. I think, no, ma'am, I'm not. She said, um, what do you have? And I ordered a traditional Southern uh, meal. 
And she said, well, you're not from around here, but wherever you're from, they know good food. So there's this sort of camaraderie that exists in the South. At the same time, a sort of weird regional xenophobia. So again, I I love the South, but to, to paraphrase James Baldwin, because I love the South, I reserve the right to criticize it because I love it so completely. I know it can be better than what it is. Yeah, me and my husband uh, have done a few road trips in America uh, pre-kids. Uh, and we've done some traveling there with kids as well. But um, I we kept, we had, there was one road trip where we kept, we were in like Virginia and North and South Carolina around that area. And we kept just like stopping off on A roads and just walking into places. And we kept making the mistake of going in and people be like, oh, you know, can I set you up with a drink before you start? And we both go, yeah, I'll just have a beer. And they're like, no, it's a dry county. <laughs> like okay but then it was that kind of like awful thing where you just felt like they would just like look at you with such like how did you dare ask for alcohol in this establishment you know what's what's funny about that is the concept of dry counties is so hypocritical because every dry county that, that there are still a few there's not as many but every dry county i know also has somebody who makes really good moonshine so that sort of hypocrisy that exists there is so so emblematic it's so southern it's not not bow and luke duke is it <laughs> not bow and luke duke but i tell you this i right now i know a guy that could probably get us a couple of a of a of leaders quarts of moonshine and uh and he's a uh, probably the uh if you saw him you, he's a deacon in a church but he also makes moonshine. So again, it's that sort of duality, that dichotomy that exists in the South. The, the South, you know, nobody gives you a better backhanded compliment than a Southerner. You know, uh, <laughs> you know that the term "bless your heart" has so many ramifications. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, like I, I feel like there are many similarities between uh, America and the UK as well but similarly from what you were saying earlier about when people kind of hark back to past times in the UK I think it's quite a common phrase for people to say like oh it didn't used to be like that in my day we did this and it's like what well, in your day when women couldn't get jobs and it was all right for like the husband to have kids out of wedlock and just carry on in in the most heinous ways but anyway I wanted to talk about the alongside the empathy I think what I enjoyed so much about your writing Sean is that it's incredibly violent in places, but uh, you you go with it because there's this huge heart at the core of it, which, you know, it's kind of a constant, a bit like the the simmering tensions of the South, as you were just saying, those kind of four pillars of the South. You also have like this real kind of love that's at the, the heart of it too. And where does that kind of come from, that real good that you want to kind of expunge in your writing as well? I think it's my family. I, I have a I had a big family growing up. Uh, we my mother and father separated when I was young, and we moved in with my grandmother. And she lived in this big ramshackle farmhouse. And my aunt lived next door, and then my uncle lived out back in a, in a, a little cabin. And so I, I was very poor growing up, like financially, we were quite impoverished. But like I didn't get indoor plumbing until I was sixteen. But there was so much love in that house. We were always joking with each other my grandparents my grandmother my grandfather my uncles were very funny they were all like i like to say they were all uh backyard orators and picnic raconteurs and so this sort of sense that you know we we may not have much but we have each other sort of permeates my writing because it was a part of my life and so when there is violence in my books it, it my violence has consequences like my violence leaves scars i think if your violence in your book doesn't change the people that the violence has been uh, visited upon, then it's a waste. 
because in real life, you know, you can hit, you know, you can hit in the face that doesn't heal overnight. You know, I, I love, I love, uh, thrillers where the, the the hero gets shot in the arm or he's fighting five people and you know the next chapter he's fine he's having breakfast and <laughs> i've gotten jumped before in a fight you're, you're not eating breakfast after that you're you're like you know putting on like heat liniment and heating pads and ice um but for me love is this great weapon you know nobody can hurt you the way somebody who loves you can hurt you vice versa might be conversely Nothing can hurt you like somebody you love being hurt. And so those two things drive sometimes the violence in my book. Like with Raised by Tears, those two fathers, their violence is equal to the love that they've lost. Uh, with all the sinners bleed, you know, Titus isn't the most violent person, but the moment somebody tries to hurt his brother, there's a great scene in the book. This isn't a spoiler. There's a great scene in the book where he's called, he's the sheriff, so he's called to a fight. There's been a fight at a, at a bar, at a pub. And uh, to use a uh, uh, UK parlance, and his brother is one of the people that has fought. And so his brother's sitting on the sidewalk, hands cuffed behind his back, and somebody from the crowd comes up and, and wants to assault his brother because they're angry that his brother beat somebody up that they were friends with. And Titus handles that situation. And it's one of the few times you see him lose his temper because somebody's going to hurt his brother, even though him and his brother have their differences. That's still his brother, you know, he still loves him and he's not going to let somebody hurt him. And so I think, you know, the greatest violence comes from the greatest deep reservoir of love, you know? And and so for me, my violence, hopefully is not gratuitous. Uh, I hope it can be brutal, but real violence is brutal. I used to be a, I don't know what you call it over there, but I used to be a bouncer. I was like security. Yeah, a, a bouncer, the same. And, yeah. you know, most of the, yeah. So most of the fights I saw were two drunk people you know, swinging and missing and then wrestling and then somebody's shirt comes pulled up and they're breathing hard and we pull them apart. Um, but every once in a while, you saw somebody who was skilled at violence and it was brutal and it, it doesn't take long. Fights in my books never take more than one page because a fight in real life, especially with somebody who's skilled, maybe a couple minutes. I, I, I'll tell y'all really quick. I had a friend who was a, a former Marine and uh, he had served in Afghanistan and he came home and we went out drinking one night and these guys we got into a confrontation with these guys and my friend said told me he says go outside get the car bring the car to the door i'll be right out i'm like you sure he's like yeah i went out to get the car i pulled it around maybe three minutes i walked back inside three of the four guys who wanted to fight us were on the ground and <laughs> bleeding and he's like all right let's go let's go and he jumps in the car and leave you know people who are skilled at violence they don't take a long time to meet it out and I want to sort of replicate that in my books. You know, there are books where violence is a male power fantasy, you know. Um, but for me, violence is brutal and it's harsh and it hurts and it should hurt um, because it's something that leaves scars on you emotionally and physically. How long were you a bouncer for? Uh, about a year and a half. Yeah, year and a half. Uh, and uh, it was funny because, like, I was also going to school. I was trying to go to school. I ended up having to drop out. But uh, I met a former girlfriend at uh, at that club. And uh, I knew, I should have known, you know, the term red flags, I guess, wasn't out <laughs> yes, as far as yes. relationships back then. But I remember talking to her. I'm, I'm, not, I'm no longer with her. I'm, I'm happily with someone else. But I remember how she said to me uh, after I'd thrown somebody out, she's like, oh, I, I, like, I like the way you fight. And mm -hmm. as a young man at 22, 23, I was like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> now as an adult, that is a red flag. <laughs> 
run for the hills if somebody tells you that. And I, I found that out the hard way. But he anyway, basically so, thought you know. that she'd found her Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse, right? That's what was going on there. Yes. <laughs> and what I found was a very toxic relationship. <laughs> but, you know, you know, case of rock to rock. <laughs> but again, like you, you do it so well in the book with, you know, Titus cries and that weird notion that boys don't cry is, I mean, it's so archaic, right? But it still pervades in a lot of action and thrillers that it's a stoic kind of you know gritty steel-hearted center of the the action hero hopefully that's changing a little bit i think you know there's a term toxic masculinity which is basically the idea that men who aren't able to communicate who aren't able to be empathetic or sympathetic are violent uh both emotionally and physically uh, and i believe there's also a thing called tragic masculinity where men who have suffered that same upbringing, but want to change. They know it's wrong. They know they've done some sort of self-analysis, but they don't have the tools to change. And so I think someone who is fully toxic as a man doesn't do that self-analysis. And characters like Titus, characters like Buddy Lee and I, characters like Bug, for me, these are men that are trying to do the work. They're trying to be better. They know that they're not uh, healthy emotionally or mentally um and you know and again that for me was a part of titus's journey was to get him into a better place titus isn't a a a, a toxic man i don't think so I, I don't think he's overly violent but he is someone who's not dealing with the traumas of his past he's not he's not acknowledging those traumas and he tries to do things to uh deflect from those traumas and i think in real life when you do that it hurts you it it it, it makes you an incomplete person um, and for me, I, you know, I think here's the thing. I think people think that to be tough, you have to be hard all the time. You know, some of the nicest, softest people I know are the toughest people I know. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think anybody would say Titus isn't tough, but like you said, Titus cries. He cares about his father. He loves his father. He loves his brother. They have a for me, their relationship was this really beautiful sort of uh, escape. For Titus, so when he's out in public, he's got the, the badge on, and people are yelling at him, both black and white. Nobody likes him. He can come home, and his daddy's cooked him a nice, you know, plate of chicken, and they're drinking a drink. And his brother will come over, and they they sit on the porch. And I think it's those moments that give him the strength to carry on. You know, somebody asked me, uh, why did I put Titus through so much in the book? <laughs> it's like a running joke that he never gets enough sleep. Um, but he's, you know. He's he's the he's the knight. He's the man that stands in the gap between the light and the dark. And he can take it. You know, he's built to take it. He's got those broad shows for a reason. And I actually love Titus as a character. I did put him through a lot. But for me, the great heroes that I admire are the, not the perfect heroes, not the toughest, not the ones that can whoop anybody's ass. It's the heroes who can take the punch and keep going. It's the ones who get knocked down seven times but get up eight. And I wanted Titus to be like that. I wanted him to have this sort of, Lord, it sounds so pretentious when I say this, but I wanted him to have this sort of epicness to him. You know, I wanted him to be Gary Cooper in, in, in High Noon. I wanted him to be, you know, uh, this this character that he's taking a lot of hits, but he keeps coming. And uh, I love that about it. Let me ask you this. I was at a school last year. I went to talk to some of the kids there about the power of reading and how if you're a voracious reader, it can improve your writing skills. And all these kids were aged around 11 and 12. And at 16 here, we'll have to sit an English writing exam. And I said, how many of you got books at home? Hardly any of them had books at home, right? Uh, and 
financially that was probably the biggest barrier was that they did their parents just couldn't afford them and then i said how many of you like stories and all the hands shut up i said how many of you would like to become a writer and a few of the hands stayed up and i said how many of you think that you'd be able to become a writer and all their hands went down and they felt it was a job that was not open to them it's the kind of thing that cool people like you do in america and that they can't do it in handsworth in the west midlands what would you say to those kids how did they break out of the glass ceiling that's been imposed upon them. Here's the thing. So, like I said before, I grew up pretty impoverished. I grew up in a small town. Uh, my mother did not have a lot of money. She was actually disabled for most of my life. Um, you know, we worked really hard to get just a scrap of things. Uh, I was somebody who didn't have enough money to buy books. I used to go to the library all the time. I had my greatest gift as a kid was uh, a teacher got me my library card, um, and I read. I still read a lot, but back then I read voraciously. The thing I would say is. If you feel like you're right, that's not something that anybody can take away from you. And there's no time limit on it. And so I feel like people, especially like those kids, I think I grew up in similar circumstances to those kids. Writing is the one thing that isn't really egalitarian. You know, I think some people think to be a writer, you have to wear a blazer with patches on your elbow and smoke a pipe. But, you know, there, there are American writers like William Gay who didn't have more than an eighth grade education. This thing is, and this gets me in hot water all the time, but you can go to school, you can go to university and learn the technical aspects of writing. You can learn passive versus active voice. You can learn verb subject agreement. You can learn all those things, but nobody can teach you how to be a storyteller. You either are one or you aren't. And we've all read enough books from people that we know aren't that still got published. And so <laughs> I think... If it's meant for you to be a storyteller, if it's meant for you to be a writer, you will find a way. It, it, you can break through. Because writing, publishing isn't a meritocracy, but writing is. Readers will tell you who are good writers and who aren't. And you don't have to have an MFA. And you don't have to have a degree. And you don't have to be from Eaton or Wharton or from any place like that. All you have to have is a story inside you that only you can tell. And that's how you know you'll be a writer. And that's that's. My journey to being a writer is very circuitous. I worked all kinds of different jobs. I wrote on my lunch break. I wrote in my car. Um, and I wrote not with the idea that, oh, one day I'm going to be on Barack Obama's summer reading list. I wrote because to not write drove me crazy. It literally upset me. I couldn't stand not telling a story. Um, my mother, who's passed on, used to tell me there were times where I got really down. I never thought I'd be published. And she used to tell me all the time, she's like, you know, Birds got to sing, bees got to sting, you got to write. What's for you, what's meant for you is for you. And nobody can take that from you. That's amazing. That's lovely. It is, yeah. I have a, I have a mum who similarly says similar things to me all the time because I don't believe in my abilities much at all. Um, but she's, yeah, she's always been really good on that. Uh, but I'm aware that our time is nearly up and we could talk to you for hours. Just before we get some of your recommendations, can you... Just give us the, the lowdown that's publicly out there that we can say about what's being adapted of your work, because I know there's a Jerry Bruckheimer and um, Trayvon Free uh, adaptation in the works. Uh, you've been working with Questlove. I don't know if there's more of that to come. Like, where are we at with your projects? So all four of my published books have been optioned. Uh, Black Top Wasteland has been optioned uh, by Pitcher Start. Uh, my Darkest Prayer has been optioned by Churnin Pitchers. Uh Raised Away Tears was, like I said, optioned by Paramount and Jerry Bruckheimer. That's going to be a film. Uh, All the Sinners Bleed has been optioned by Netflix. 
and uh, it's going to be produced by Higher Ground in association with Amlin for a limited TV series. Just, just uh, so, so for people who were... don't know, so that's basically you've got the Obamas and Steven Spielberg at the helm of all the Sinners Bleed. Yeah, yeah. So they're working on that for Netflix. So all those are in different area, different uh, uh, degrees of production. Uh, I am working on another Questlove book, uh, which we he and I did a, a young adult or a middle grade book, really fun project. Um, and I am currently, as of this recording, still working on my next book, tentatively titled King of Ashes. It's a crime novel about a family who owns a crematory and they, uh, uh, the youngest brother runs afoul of some gangsters and the older brother has to try to help him out while the middle sister sort of tries to take care of all of, all of them. Um, and this is a family that also has a secret hanging over their heads. When they were young teenagers, their mother disappeared. And everybody in their small town thinks their father murdered her because she was having an affair. And so this cast this shadow over their whole lives and how they uh, interact not only with each other, but the rest of the world. So I'm currently still working on that. So that's sort of my uh, my rundown of projects uh, in development. Wow. I can't wait to read that. And so tell us then, finally, the um, give us some recommendations, Sean. What have you been reading that we might like? So my favorite crime novel the past year, uh, from last year, I should say, um, was Everybody Knows by Jordan Harper. Um, Jordan is a screenwriter uh, and novelist and from Los, in Los Angeles, but he's from the Ozarks in Missouri, which if you know anything about the United States, the Ozarks is very much a part of the South. Uh, he's an incredible, incredible, incredibly talented writer who writes these really beautiful, sweeping artistic books, but with this sort of cold clinical eye of somebody who's lived in Hollywood for the last 15 years. Everybody knows is basically uh, a story of a of a crisis management PR firm um, that comes across something so big and so horrific that even they might not be able to keep it out of the papers. And it's sort of this uh, really beautiful but sad sort of elegy uh, to celebrity and Hollywood excess. Uh, it was my favorite crime novel last year. I really loved it. Uh, it's an incredible book. It's an instant classic. People will be talking about this book in 15 years. Uh, the other thing that I read I really love is a book called Ozark Dogs by a gentleman named Eli Craner. Uh, it's a crime novel, but it's also sort of a family drama, sort of a, a modern day uh, Hatfield and McCoy set in Arkansas. Uh, Eli is an incredible talent. I've been lucky enough to meet him. Um, and uh, he's just about to blow up. I, by, by, this, by this time next year, he will be a household name. He's so good. And then finally, my favorite book in general that I read last year, uh, and I still think about it, is uh, Let Us Descend by Jesmyn Ward. Jesmyn Ward has probably deleted more good sentences than I'll ever write. She's probably the greatest American living writer. Uh, and Let Us Descend is a masterpiece, a sort of hallucinatory dream walk through uh, the uh, Old South, the Antebellum South. Um, when you read that book, from the first sentence on, you are in the hands uh, of a master. She's she's incredible. I, I just, I think she's probably, if not the heir apparent to Faulkner, she's definitely in the running. So those are my three favorite books from last year. So that last one, Let Us Descend, and that's Jesmyn, J-E-S-M-Y-N, and then Ward, as you would expect. And that was an Oprah's Book Club pick as well, Let Us Descend. Yeah, and I yes. saw on your uh, yes. Instagram from a while back, you 
Was it the first time that you'd met Jasmine? Oh, my God. I got to meet her last year at National Book Festival in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I'm a pretty gregarious person. I'm a pretty outgoing person. I don't usually get tongue-tied. But I was sitting there at this table, and, and one of the, the directors was like, hey, are there any writers here that you like to meet? And I said, oh, I would love to meet Jasmine Ward, but I don't want to bother her. You know, I'm sure she's busy. And then, like, five minutes later, she comes over and taps me on the shoulder. She's like, somebody said you wanted to meet me. And I lost my mind. I couldn't even talk. I spoke like English was the language I was just learning. I was like, oh, me, you, right, good. And it was like, I was so blown away. And she's so, she's so wonderful and so erudite and so intelligent and so nice and funny. And it was just, a, it was the highlight of, I, I, one of my highlights of the last year is getting to meet her. Like I said, she, it's, you know what? It's rare that you get to meet a person who is a true genius, a certifiable genius. And, you know, and and, and to get to talk to her and sort of sort of just uh, absorb through osmosis her insights and her her incredible uh, understanding of human nature. It was wonderful. Like I said, and she's so nice. She's cool. She's tiny. Well, I'm big. I'm I'm six one and like I'm a big boy, but <laughs> she's a tiny lady. But uh, she's so kind, and she was so sweet and very kind to take a photo with me. So it was, uh, as you can tell in that picture, I'm grinning like I'm in a toothpaste commercial. But uh, <laughs> she was really nice. Yeah, no, it's cool, and it's lovely to see as well. And, uh, yeah, she's just rocketed up then my uh, need-to-read list for sure. But I had a similar thing with um, uh, I produced a couple of series of a podcast, of Gregory Porter's podcast, and in that similar way where you're like, He'd just like spontaneously break into song when you were doing a recording. And I'm like, it's like I'm sitting next to like Ella Fitzgerald or is that kind of of, of genius that you're like this? Yeah, it's such a privilege to to witness that. And, you know, in our lifetime, it's amazing. Sean, thank you so much for doing bestsellers. This has been a privilege for us. Uh, we can certainly speak to you a writing genius. That's for sure. And I also like the way you fight, man. I'm just flirting with you now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me this was wonderful i really appreciate it thank you yeah and next time like uh i don't drink whiskey but i'd definitely be up for a, a late night drink chat more cats chat more life in general it'd be <laughs> fascinating so hopefully next time you come over to the uk we can sort that out i would love to thank you my favorite bit of that interview and it explains why his writing is so accurate is when he was talking about his time as a doorman Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how violence never in real life, violence is more brutal, but never lasts as long as it does in films. And he's equated that to the written page. And yeah. I just think it's the kind of thing you can only know if you've lived it. And, you know, what, what an amazing life Sean has lived. Yeah. And also, I think just you can live it, but you can also research it really well. And it's it's a bit of a bugbear of mine as well when you're reading something and there's been a horrific fight or, you know, you're watching something on telly or any film because it does happen all the time. And you think, wow, you like recovered really well. You just had that one scene where you went, oh, like my back or like, oh, that hurt. Yeah. And then you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Limped so, a bit to the car. And then once yeah. you're in the car, you've no longer been battered. And it's not just the physical effects, but as Sean was saying, it's the mental effects yeah, of those yeah. kind of uh, incidents, as you would hope, do resonate and you know, impact so many other areas of your life. And, you know, that's why the characters are so great in this story. They really are. And also what struck me was how his mum was so persistently encouraging. Yeah. And I almost got the impression that he felt he succeeded despite the publishing industry rather than because of the publishing industry. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what a great, 
what a great return for this midpoint of series five. We very much hope that you have all enjoyed listening to Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby, as much as we enjoyed chatting to him. So, yes, more writers to come, more episodes to come. And we're also working on bolstering our offering to you. So we're very close to putting a bestsellerspodcast.com website up live. So we'll tell you when that's ready to go. Then you can join a mailing list on that. And then we can start to offer you extra added content like newsletters packed with author recommendations and that kind of thing. So 2024 is hopefully going to be a big year for us and in turn a more rewarding year for you as you not only listen, but then to get some extra content from us as well. So stay tuned for detail on that. It's very, very close to happening and to completion. And it's so close. I've exhausted every single swear word known to the English language (laughs) in trying to build this website. Yeah. Um, It's something that we've wanted to do for a really long time and absolutely the author recommendation, because if you're anything like me, I need it written down or I need need an easy resource where I can go to and go, what was that book they were talking about? And we understand and appreciate it can be a bit of a faff to rewind a podcast if you're like, oh, that did sound like a really good book or you just forget about it when you stop listening. So, yeah, that is all going to happen and we will let you know as soon as it is. And we're also actually, uh, depending on what order you listen to these things, The next episode that we're going to put out is slightly different for us too, where we really like talking about screen adaptations of books as well. So I was lucky enough to have a bit of time with uh, an author and a showrunner of an adaptation of the book Black Cake that you may or may not be familiar with, but we'll tell you loads more about that next time. Excellent. And I think that is going to be doing a bit more of that for us as well. So, lots of exciting developments. Don't go anywhere. I'm not going to direct you to the Kofi site because I feel like we haven't earned a brew yet. But once that bloody <laughs> website's up, you'll need to buy me a couple. I tell you, I won't need it. It won't be tea or coffee I've been needing. It'll be whiskey. More soon. Keep reading, keep enjoying reading, and hope you're all well. 